This is the Ned Group Investments Podcast, a space where you can learn more about our fund managers, the funds they manage, as well as getting up-to-date and important developments affecting the investment world and how they might be relevant to you. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this afternoon's session of Ned Group Investments Insights. I'm Mohini Naidu, Investment Analyst on the Ned Group Investments Best of Breed team, and it is my pleasure today to welcome Brian Selmo, Co-Portfolio Manager of the Ned Group Investments Global Flexible Fund. Brian will be talking to us about how the fund has fared over the last quarter and some of the drivers of recent performance. Brian will also share insights into how the FPA team are navigating this challenging environment and accordingly, how this impacts the fund's positioning and ability to deliver on its objectives through a full market cycle. At the end of the presentation, we will have a few minutes for Q&A. Please submit your questions for Brian in the Q&A panel on the right side of your screens, and we will try to get through as many of these as possible at the end of Brian's presentation. So without further ado, I will now hand you over to Brian. Brian, welcome. Thank you for having me today. A quick fund overview. We strive for equity-like returns uh, with less risk of permanent impairment than the equity markets. We do that in you know, global equities, high yield and distress in the US, and then holding some cash when, uh, when we you know, have less opportunity set or when we're looking to manage some risk. We move quickly through the portfolio. You know, We flex up and down the equity exposures. And so if you go back and look at this over time, you would have seen a higher equity exposure in the early part of 19, a lower equity exposure in the back part, and then we increase the equity exposure again in the first quarter, second quarter of 2020. We maintain a higher equity exposure now than we did a year or so ago. We'll talk a little bit about why that is when we look at some of the characteristics of the portfolio in a couple more slides. Again, just moving quickly, this is the allocation by country. And the quick takeaway from this, if you've been on some of these calls before or familiar with our background, the portfolio is sort of continuing to shift out of the US in terms of country of domicile. Really the businesses we own in the US are primarily balance sheet intensive financials and then some of the global internet platform companies. So we don't tend to own a ton of what I'd call US for US businesses, meaning that the, you know, all the economic activities of those companies are, are domestic in nature. Let me just move on. Now, performance-wise, it's been a tough year for performance, and that's largely been driven by exposure that we had coming into the year in financials as well as in aerospace and defense. And on the aerospace side, we had a number of names that were commercial aerospace suppliers. So these are parts manufacturers. You know, they were certainly not priced, and nor had we modeled something like a global shutdown in traffic. So those businesses remain well positioned in terms of entrenched and and established on various airframes and on platforms. But you know, their demand and their their profit profile for the next year or two is going to be under quite a bit of pressure. But we continue to think those are really good, solid franchises over time. So if you move on, this is the by name performance. I would just highlight over the 12 month period. There you can see the, the largest sort of challenges being in the aerospace and uh, and financials and the and the kind of winners being in, you know, what are the communications tech service type companies. Now, quick market commentary, what's going on out in the world? So I think probably people know this, but the you know, growth companies, specifically large growth companies, are really uh, doing very well in the market, probably doing better as businesses as well. 
you know, we've, uh, we're value investors, so we've tended to have a little bit of pressure headwind from that. You can see the sort of value parts of the market have really suffered over the last, or at least year to date. If I move on, you're starting to get to pretty extreme dispersion. So these are the 75 large cap, big growers or fastest growing, most highly valued. And you can see they're, they're real market darlings right now. And some of that, you know, is always going to be driven by them being great companies. But this chart kind of takes that into account because these are always the same selection of those, you know, 75 fastest growing big companies. And so they're always great companies when you're looking at this. This is really just getting into how relatively expensive those companies are, the great companies relative to others in the market. Top five in the market, this is in the U.S., you know, dominate the market caps. And these are the, you know, Apple, Amazons, uh, Facebook, Microsoft, and Googles. And then when you get to valuation spread, this is just showing there's quite a bit of dispersion in the market. So value names are are quite a bit cheaper than others and, and quite a bit cheaper than they have been at other times in history. So now this is the part that helps explain why do we have, uh, you know, the exposure that we do. I think there's two things. One, this is a picture of the equity portfolio or the equities in the fund relative to various indexes on both a valuation basis from where things were a year ago, where they were at the mid-year, and then I think the most interesting part is that you can see the portfolio is, you know, cheaper than the various markets a year ago, remains cheaper today. And then the interesting part is that the companies we own are actually pretty dynamic in terms of growing. And, and as a portfolio basis, our businesses actually grew faster than the market. If we took the snapshot a year ago, if we took the snapshot, you know, at the end of the second quarter, and then I think maybe more importantly, the expected growth is now well ahead of the market. And so what that is, is some of the more cyclical businesses we own, you know, have had a depression in their earnings in the first six months of this year, right? It's a big pandemic, the economy slowed down around the world. And so there's an expectation that a lot of those earnings will come back over the next two, three years. That would certainly be true of aerospace, something we called out, but it would also be true of some of the metals and minings, it'd be true of some of the materials companies, and it would be true of the financials as well that are in our portfolio. That was a hopefully reasonably robust, but I tried to speed up the uh, presentation so that we could we could try to get close to schedule. So thank you for your time for letting me go through that. Mohini, I'd be happy to take questions now. Great, thank you, Brian. Yes, so the, the sound quality is a lot better now. I'm hoping that everybody can Great. hear us clearly. So one of the questions that's come through is, Investors are very much aware of your style, your process and philosophy of being very much bottom up investors, right. but you yourself describe yourselves as being macro aware for want of yes. a better, better expression. How is that playing out in the current environment? How are things like, you know, the US election coming up, COVID-19, low interest rates, how is all of that now factoring into your positioning on the portfolio? Yeah, I, I think a couple of fold there. So let me try to address each of those in turn. I think first, when you think about the coronavirus or COVID-19, you know, hugely disruptive, disorienting earlier in the year. And I think our watchword for that was let's upgrade the portfolio and let's be into things that are whens, not ifs. So anything with balance sheet risk, anything with, you know, sort of you know, tertiary issues associated with it, you know, given so much was down in the first quarter, you know, we were able to sell those things and buy into businesses that we think were higher quality. 
businesses like Marriott or bookings on the travel side, businesses like Swire Pacific, Big Land Holding in Asia, or things like NXPI, semiconductor companies set the benefit from the Internet of Things. And then we also added to positions in the cable companies in the US. So I think I think that's one on COVID is you know, we've always sought to be in businesses that I think are robust to any number of scenarios. Global pandemic was definitely not a modeled scenario in our mind or in our uh, process, but it's one that, you know, you want to, uh, you know, make sure that you think the companies, not necessarily that the earnings are going to remain stable through it, but that their fundamental competitive position remains stable and they come out stronger on the other side. I think the second one, that's very much so that's very much on, on our minds and in the research process. The second one that's pretty much on our minds, and I want to go back to it when we think about the options that an investor faces, and this is the profile of the portfolio. And if you saw in here, you didn't include it, but you'd see that the yield on the portfolio is a couple percent too. I think it's two and a quarter or something at the end of the second quarter on the equities. And so, you know, an investor is faced broadly with how much market risk do they want to accept versus a cash or bond alternative? And bonds yield, you know, in Europe and in the US and in Japan, they yield nothing negative or next to nothing, right? That That's the yield. And so if you were to think over a long period of time, right, you're thinking over a five or 10 year period, a portfolio that trades at 20 times depressed earnings, right? And I'd say I'm arguing they're depressed because you can see the analyst consensus estimate is for pretty quick growth out of this for our portfolio. So that's about a 5% free cash flow yield. And with the kind of growth you would expect, that probably means that the free cash flow yield three to five years out is going to be closer to 10%. So you're looking at buying a collection of assets that are going to in five years be yielding ballpark, right? Ballpark 10% or you can sit in cash or in bonds that if you take any duration on them are guaranteeing you they won't earn anything more. They might even pay you less back in five or 10 years. And so we think that the that backdrop is just very compelling to have a greater exposure to the equities that are in our portfolio. Again, which are selected on a bottoms up basis, as you alluded to with specific you know, attributes and attractive characteristics of the of the company. So it's not just kind of a gatter shot. And so we think that merits having greater equity exposure as we talked about earlier as that we you know address in the slide deck and then now in the questions. And so what that might result in is you know some level of mark to market. So there might be you know equity pressure or equity benefit just in terms of volatility in the portfolio. But if one has that five year or more outlook or holding period, I think it's pretty clear that equities are going to pull through on a better basis than any fixed income with duration in our estimation. And then lastly, on the election, you know, I <laughs> tough, tough to predict. I think I, you know, the betting markets and everything else, it's, it's highly probable that Biden wins. That certainly is the mood in the country as well. I guess I'm, I haven't been in the entire country, but we spent some time recently where I grew up, which is in the Midwest, which is a different part of the country than the coast. I live in Los Angeles right now, and in Los Angeles and California will be, you know, all for Biden. Big question will be what happens with the U.S. Senate, which is a little bit closer. And the reason that's a big question is because that will end up uh, having a big impact on what the ultimate tax policy is. But I think, you know, one should expect that regulation will be 
heightened and most likely taxes are going to go up in the U.S. Offsetting that, you know, would be at a minimum a more consistent, probably a more international and robust and thoughtful foreign policy, which which could help in terms of some of the trade conflicts that have been going on the last four years or so. But it's still uncertain. Uh, you know, elections can be very surprising. And so if it turns out the other way, then, you know, I, I would suspect it'd be kind of more of the same. Thanks, Brian. That was a very comprehensive response. You've you've alluded to this to this already in your answer on the previous question, but the question that's come through is with cash yielding nothing and a quarter of the portfolio in cash, this yeah. is surely a drag on performance. How comfortable are you with maintaining this high cash position at these low yields? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's a tension between, you know, in investment opportunity, valuation and cash. And so I think we have gotten more invested, as I mentioned and showed in the slides. And I think the question is, when do you spend down the last of your cash reserves is an imperfect science. And so I think we would hope for slightly better valuations to do that. But I think we are biased towards being more invested, given, given the uh, interest rate environment. In fact, if you look at your equity exposure through time, you've been managing, FPA have been managing the contrarian value strategy for over two decades now. Your equity yep. exposure is actually at the higher end. It is, that's right. Yeah. And and I think and I, I think you could see it averaging a higher exposure going forward too. Again, depending on the background and whatnot. But yeah, I, I think that that's the bias and that's the environment right now. Right. So the cash position is higher because you're not finding those other opportunities in distressed right. debt and high yield. Yeah. And um, do you want to talk to us a little bit about that sector? Yeah, I I think that the high yield markets are incredibly difficult. I mean, I I just quoted in a rate, right? The high yield markets in the U.S. yield somewhere between four and a half and five given the day. And that is, you know, before, you know, taxes, which are are likely to take 40 or more percent of that going forward. And it's before any defaults or delinquencies. And so, you know, it it doesn't really seem to be worth it. I, I think, again, we would probably think that the return profile from a, a, you know our equity portfolio is going to be better than that over time. And so we really haven't done much in high yield. There were a couple names we were able to buy at 10% plus kind of yields back in the March timeframe, but that opportunity was very short lived. You know, I think the, I'm not sure how well it was reported internationally, but the Fed stepped in very, very quickly and kind of assured the debt markets and, and started buying bonds here in the US. And so I think there hasn't been a real natural cycle there given the economic disruption. You know, the longer that COVID-19, you know, stresses the economy, the more it becomes an economic issue than a health issue. Perhaps you start to see some of those things materialize on the debt side, but it it, it hasn't really happened so far. I think, you know, depending on how you want to look at it, I, I think the government here and, and governments in a lot of countries have done a good job of sort of uh, you know covering the disruption with whether it's payment forbearances or whether it's direct monetary actions in in credit markets, and if if the world is to kind of open up in you know later as this quarter goes on and next quarter and there's a vaccine or something, it could well be a, a fairly uh, quick recovery without sort of a a long uh, you know sort of distress or or credit cycle, but that's still still to see. 
Did the speed of the recovery surprise you? I mean, there seems to be such a disconnect between the returns that markets are delivering, risk equity markets, yeah. and and you know all of the distress that we are seeing around the world in in terms of economies, GDP numbers, unemployment. You know, is is this any of this concerning for you, given that you've now got an almost full allocation to equity relative to your history? Yeah, I mean, it is somewhat concerning, which is probably why we don't have more equity exposures. I was talking to the earlier question, right? If if you didn't have some of those concerns, or if if the val, let's say the market was cheap to a long, you know, difficult economic recovery. I think you'd see us more equity invested because of the interest rate environment, and the lack of credit opportunities that we talked about. And so that's the tension with, you know, is 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 yes, cash is a drag on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know, it certainly doesn't seem like the entire market is broadly cheap. I think there are pockets of the market that are pretty cheap and certainly very cheap compared to the alternatives in credit. Thanks, Brian. There's a question coming through on value stocks. So in the current cycle, how do you see value stocks playing out over the next 12 to 18 months? We know that they haven't fared well over the last few years. What could be the catalyst for this to turn around? And what do you think the time frame is for this for this to happen? Yeah, it it's hard to address what I would call, you know, value stocks. And I certainly don't have any perspective on the next 12 to 18 months. I would say the things in our portfolio that we think of as traditional value or where your primary interest in them is the valuation rather than the business quality, you know, are still businesses that are viable 10 years out, you know, necessary type of businesses. And and so the sort of two categories that really come to mind, if I'm going to put the air quotes around value, are, are one on the financial side and then two on the material side. So these are cement companies and mining companies. And I think what will drive performance of those is, is a math problem. So I think those businesses are, you know, surviving, somewhat thriving during the height of the coronavirus. You can see how cheaply they trade to their either existing or next year's earnings, right? So these are low to mid single digit type of multiples. As a group of companies, these companies have mid single digit dividend yields. And I think that the management teams of the companies we're invested in are very prudent and reasonable allocators of capital. So I think you're going to see significant buybacks next year, or really at any point that they start to feel comfort in that they, you know, that the economy has kind of reached some bottoming out level, right? I mean, most people were surprised, or most businesses certainly were surprised by the coronavirus, surprised by the lockdowns. And I think that caused a lot of conservatism and very appropriate conservatism companies with regard to how they were uh, allocating their capital and using their balance sheet, right? If you go back to the first quarter, everyone drew down their lines, everyone husbanded all the cash they could because, you know, who who knew what was going to happen? I think as you get to two, three quarters of, you know, depressed, but a, a more normalized level of economic activity, people will start to have some confidence that the earnings power that they're demonstrating is sustainable, even if the pandemic, you know, goes on for years. And I think when they get that confidence, probably the first quarter of next year, they're going to say, you know, geez, we've got all this cash flow. You know, we don't have M&A. We don't have expansion opportunities. We got to start buying back our stock or paying a bigger dividend. So I think that mechanism of, you know, you if you traded a more than 10% free cash flow yield, which, which all the companies I alluded to do, 
it doesn't take long for those buybacks to get very, very accretive. And I think that that will maybe not over 12 months, but certainly over three to five years drive the performance of those companies. Thanks, Brian. So just coming back to financials, and certainly in the South African market, our financial sector has been pretty hard hit through this through this crisis, and much of the recovery from South African equities has really been driven by the resources sector, and financials are still the laggards, in spite yeah. of our banks being actually very well capitalized. Are you yeah. seeing a similar kind of theme playing out in, in global markets? And to what extent are you actually concerned about the abilities of banks to withstand a distressed consumer through the COVID pandemic? Yeah, so two things I'd say, very similar picture in the US market. We really don't do much in the way of financials internationally, but in the US we do have some exposures to banks and insurance companies. And, and I think here we're now pretty much through, at least for the names that we own, we're through the third quarter of reporting and so we've got a pretty good picture on what credit losses are going to be and what you know delinquencies are, have been, what forbearance has been. And I think that it is, in, unless there is a major leg down from here, and when I say a major leg down, I'm saying like a leg down equally as damaging as say the great financial crisis or you know the height of the second quarter this year. This is not going to be a capital issue for the banks or financial companies in the U.S. Right? They're they're still profitable, they're demonstrably well capitalized, they've put up a ton of reserves. I think it's more likely than not that those reserves are redundant. And so I think what is continuing to pressure those stocks or why they have not recovered you know, as much as the market has more to do with the low level of interest rates and concerns around what the ultimate earnings power is. I mean, I think that many of the banks you know, gave a fairly optimistic guidance about, you know, being the fourth quarter or third, fourth quarter kind of being the trough of the reset in earnings power from interest rates being lower. And so I would, again, I think tag back to the previous answer that as that starts to shine through in the next few quarters, they will get off the restriction from the Fed to not do any buybacks, right? Because again, appropriately so, nobody knew what was going to happen. So everyone canceled their buyback programs. And I think that when they start to do those buybacks, I mean, those are companies that are trading, you know, again, I don't want to pick a point, but somewhere between five and seven times the earnings that they had 12 months ago and probably that they'll have in another 12 or 18 months. And so the buybacks there really, really, you know, drive a lot of earnings growth and a lot of book value accretion. So I think that that will, will help, uh, you know, change the performance trajectory of those stocks is the hope. Great. Thanks, Brian. We've had a question come through on inflation. The inflation topic has come up in a number of our sessions of late. What is the FPA view on inflation over the shorter, medium and longer term in the context of the monetary injection by central banks? Yeah, I, I think a couple of things. In the short term, we don't really have a view. I mean, over any period of time, inflation is going to be in, inflation in anything that you want is going to be pretty robust, right? So the cost of medical procedure, may, medical procedure, maybe not, but cost of education, cost of a fancy car, cost of fancy jewelry, whatever else it is. I think there's going to be plenty of in, in, in where people want to live in the world. There's going to be plenty of inflation and all that over time. You know, what, what's been an interesting economic development over the last number of years is in the you know, in the wealthy parts of the world, the 
portion of GDP, you know, think about it as labor and capital that goes to producing necessities, right? So basic shelter, food, clothing, things like that. It's gone down, 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 right? The easiest way to think about it is a portion of the population that's working on farms, you know, 100 years ago was, you know, 70, 80% of the labor force in the US and now it's, you know, I think sub 2%. And, and so what's happened is those necessities have not seen the same inflation as as sort of the desirables. And that's what's happened in, you know, wealthier countries. I think in in less wealthy countries, you have a different dynamic because you have some issues with imported, you know, food and commodity inflation, and that can be difficult and damaging to, to those economies. So I would say that we would suspect that there will continue to be inflation in the purchasing power of you know dollars and euros versus you know kind of the desirable goods is going to probably be less you know a decade from now thanks brian i think we have time for just one last question before we sign off um, you mentioned the rt sector doing being quite a beneficiary of the of the market run to right. what extent but but you're not really in those sort of amazons and google stocks so what are in, in what way is the Global Flexible Fund positioned to capitalize on this IT and, and maybe specifically Alphabet and Facebook, if you could quickly touch on those. So, you know, we, we spend a bunch of time on, you know, what I'll call the new business models and, and everything else. And when they get to reasonable prices, we certainly want to buy them because they're great businesses. And so our exposures right now are Alphabet and Facebook we also own a number of international platforms, whether it's Alibaba, Baidu, or a, a Naspers or Process, which is really a way to get into Tencent on the cheap in China. And so we've got a, a pretty meaningful position in the, I'll call them internet platform businesses. Uh, and then the other place that we have positions is in US cable. So this is broadband connection. And so this uh, hopefully allows services like this to function more easily in the future. Maybe we had some broadband issues earlier, but we all we all got a lesson in how important broadband and a speedy connection is. And so, you know, that that's a service that in the US is a, is a very attractive business. And then, then the last place that we have an exposure right now is in, you know, I mentioned the semiconductors and XPI. We also own ADI and TE connectivity. And so these are, you know, either analog semiconductors or connectors that really allow for the electrification of the world, Internet of Things, and then also the move to battery power in cars. And so those are the places that we have exposures right now. But more broadly, we look at those kind of businesses constantly. Great. Thanks very much, Brian. It looks like that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for making the time to speak to us. And I know it's been a pretty early start for you with LA being nine hours behind South Africa time-wise. So thank you also to our investors for dialing in today and for bearing with us through the technical difficulties. A recording of the session will be available shortly. Please check in with your Net Group Investments representative if you would like access to this. And don't forget also to dial in on Thursday for insights with Perfit, the managers of our Global Cautious Fund, where hopefully the tech will run a lot better. Thanks again for joining us, Brian. Take Thank care. And have a good evening. You too. Have a good day. Negroup Collective Investments is an authorised collective investment scheme manager in terms of the Collective Investment Schemes Control Act. 
NetGroup Investments does not provide advice on financial products and will only give you factual information. For further details on our funds and to view our terms and conditions, please visit nedgroupinvestments.co.za.